Okay, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for another day just to be alive and gathered together like this for another meal you've prepared for us. We're grateful, Father, for the food that sustains us, that comes from your word and your spirit. We ask, Father, that you guide us this evening and that you help us understand what we need to know, convict us of what we need. We rely on you for these things, Father. Um, you know we need your help in so many ways. And Father, most of all, we're thankful and grateful for your Son, Jesus Christ, that you sent him out of heaven to do the unthinkable once for all, so that whoever trusts in him will be saved forever. Father, please bless this message. It's in Christ's precious name we pray, by the power of your Spirit. Amen. All right, Undistracted Devotion to the Lord, Part 5, a wonderful subject. Um, I hope you're all enjoying it. Um, this series, as well as a few lessons before this series started, um, to me have just been giving uh, certain gems, certain pearls that, you know, have hit home with me anyway, that I've been really grateful for, and he's setting me free by, and I hope it's the same for you. And if not, you may need to, uh, you know, do some review of some lessons or some blogs because there's just been some wonderful things that he's um, graced us with. Like as again, like a fine meal, like a five-star meal, if you will, on a platter. But you have to uh, recognize it and take the time to enjoy it sometimes to appreciate it. Something that hit me on Sunday was the encouragement from the Spirit to never lose the perspective that we are already victorious in Christ Jesus. And as you know, that's the latest blog of Victor's Perspective. And it's by maintaining this perspective at all times that we're empowered to live for the Lord in an undistracted way. Like, how do we do this thing that God wants from us? To live undistractedly devoted to Him. It's a mystery to us in the flesh. We're totally unable to do this thing. But uh, by having that perspective of a victor, by living in the victory, and therefore you're casting everything upon him at the same time. You are acknowledging fully in your soul that the victory is because of him. And that alone allows you to get out of the way and for him to take you to this place. Only by surrendering will we be enabled to live with undistracted devotion. And this verse came to mind as I was thinking about this, and um, it was on my you know, soul the last few days, really, um, about the victor's perspective and holding on to that. So go to, um, oh, actually, I have this on the board for you. Relax. John 16, 24. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. That's the verse that popped into my head as I was thinking about living in the victory, you know, enjoying living life from that position that he's given you by grace. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. 
In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. So our Lord, our Master, our Savior has overcome the world. That means everything. That means it is finished. And if he's victorious, then those who are under his care are also victorious. There's nothing that can take you away from the king, right? Especially an all-powerful king. If you're his, you're his. And as our resurrected king, he has the power to sustain the victory he accomplished. That's the great thing about the resurrection. The proof of the victory that he conquered sin and death. Therefore, we literally have nothing to fear. That's one of our greatest weaknesses, isn't it, in the flesh? Fear creeping in. We went, we went into this, I think, a couple weeks ago. We literally have nothing to fear. We are victors because of Christ, period. And even though we're going to have tribulation, we can take courage, as Jesus said, because he's already overcome the world. So there's our perspective. And as we walk around with that perspective of being a victor, um, he's given us a recurring theme to recall on the board. But only one thing is necessary. Jesus was speaking of himself, worshiping him, partaking in the bread of life. He, the word, is our sustenance. While the world focuses on the physical, we believers are to focus on spiritual, heavenly food and shelter. So you've got the victor's perspective on one side that you're allowed to walk in. You're encouraged to walk in without any worries. And then as you're walking in that perspective, there's really only one thing to focus on. And that is him. That is the word. That is making sure that you have that respect for the word to sit at his feet undistractedly and have that attitude even towards his word. So as we live our lives to bring glory to God, we must remember he provides for all our needs along the way. So we're kind of synthesizing a lot of things, I think, that have come up lately. Think about this. Our Heavenly Father promises to provide for all of our needs, right? He promises. That's like not even a question. You shouldn't even be thinking about that. At the end of Matthew chapter 6, for example. So if that's true, this frees us up to focus on bringing our Heavenly Father glory, whatever He wants us to do, rather than worrying about the details of life, the food, the clothing, you know, our lives, our reputation, etc. If He's going to take care of that, that frees us up to run towards His purpose for us, which we're going to see more about tonight. And if we know He's going to provide all that stuff that we need, we can then focus on his mission undistractedly. So allow me to share a connecting of the dots that the Spirit did for me in my own Bible reading. Um, turn in your Bibles to John 4.31. John 4.31. We're going to read this passage in context to gather you know, where he's taking us and what he wants us to do with this freedom. And even how we're energized. John 4.31 Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. 
But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, no one brought him anything to eat, did he? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. Now, he wasn't talking about literal fields and literal crops. This is in the middle of him evangelizing the Samaritan woman at the well. And this is what he says. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields. They are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. So first of all, we see the Lord's work was to harvest the lost souls in this world. And he encouraged the disciples to reap in the same way. And there's a glimpse of the Great Commission he passed on to all of us before he ascended into heaven. So we concluded his food, his energy, and his sustenance came from doing the Father's will and work. And what was the Father's will and work in this passage? It was to reap the harvest of souls that are awaiting his good news. Pretty simple and straightforward. We might say to seek and save the lost also. That was the Father's work that gave him sustenance, energy, um, fulfilled him, where he didn't even care about physical food. And so being his disciples, we can be sustained and energized in our lives by living in the same work he lived in. Who would have thought that actually living in or doing work would give you energy? Because normally when you do work, you expend energy, right? You get tired. You need to replenish. Not in the supernatural, spiritual life. When you do work, you receive energy. I guess it's kind of like when you, you give. You're the one that's blessed. So God wants us to live the same way. He, he showed us the example, and we can be sustained the same way by living in the same work that he lived in. And if you think about it, there's nothing as fulfilling in life as finding your purpose and living in it. I mean, we are so blessed to actually know the true purpose we've been created. People in the world would even say this, though. They would say, I would just want to find my purpose in life, right? And when I find my purpose in life, I'll be fulfilled. That's something in us. And of course, when we find the true purpose in life, we really can be filled up with all the fullness of God and not have any voids in our lives, not even have any hunger or thirst in our lives. So as we connect the dots from John 4 um, regarding this work that sustains us, go to John 15, verse 8. John 15, 8. 
funny, we want, you know, to find our purpose or, you know, to be satisfied with what we do in life, but it's right under our nose. The problem is we don't submit to it. We don't accept his calling on us, whether it's our gifts, whether it's being part of the Great Commission. If we just accepted that in humility, we'd have great satisfaction and it would allow him to go to work in us. Look at John 15, 8. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. God wants us to feel full all the time. But it's only by obeying His commands and living in His love. So connecting the dots on the board, Jesus is saying that our obedience to His Word, abiding in His love, and living out His commands, such as the Great Commission, can give us His joy, which makes our souls full. John 4, 34 through 35, and John 15, 10 through 11. This attitude or this perspective or accepting this uh, truth is a decision to be made in each of our hearts each day. Are you going to live in your purpose? Are you going to live in your calling? Or are you going to push it aside so you can live for self? and keep some of your own goals. Will we hold on to this perspective on the board or are we gonna let it go? This is the only one that gives joy. It's the only one that fills us up. And we might even say this is part of the victor's perspective. Jesus encouraged us to reap where we did not sow. The fields are ripe for harvest. He said, go. Reap where you did not sow. Do you know what that means? To the victor goes the spoils. You're a victor in Christ. And he's saying, I don't even want you to sow. I've had other people sow. Go reap. Go reap the victory with me. And the gospel gives us that fulfillment too, that satisfaction. Participating in the gospel, as Paul would say. So again, on the board, Jesus is saying that our obedience to his word, abiding in his love and living out his commands, such as the Great Commission, can give us his joy, which makes our souls full. And it's our choice who and what we look to for strength and satisfaction in this life. We're the ones that do it to ourselves when we're dissatisfied, when we're not fulfilled. We do it to ourselves. Our eyes are on the wrong things. You know, we're trying to keep one eye on the Great Commission and one eye on our stuff or our goals or what we think is going to make us happy. I was thinking about, you know, for me personally anyway, when I go on trips, especially like nice trips, they don't fulfill me. You know, I don't know if this is true for you or not, but I, I go on a trip and like, a, you know, might be a nice place in like three days. I'm like, you know what? Is this supposed to make me like happier or something? And it just doesn't do it. And God, one at a time, shows us these things that we think we need for happiness are um, empty. 
And he's like, are you going to look to me for the strength, for purpose, for uh, joy, for enthusiasm in life, for why you're here? I think of uh, Stephen in Acts 7 when he was the first martyr. His exuberance, his enthusiasm about the Lord and the way he, you know, spilled his heart to the Jews with the truth was you could just see it in his, in, his, in his words. So that purpose in him, for example, was fulfilled. He ended up bringing glory to God in the greatest way possible. But he was looking to the right person for strength and satisfaction in life. It was his life. He became his life. And that's what God's saying to us. This is the way, the truth, and the life. It's that simple. But what do we do? We keep looking around the corner. On the board, this came out on Sunday. The world has a myriad of counterfeits. But there's only one true joy. And it's from following our Lord in His commands. As in John 15, 11 again. There's only one true way to joy. To being filled. And remember, our Heavenly Father is going to give us enough food along the way, enough supplies along the way, so that our job is to concern ourselves with the Father's business. What's the Father's business? Seeking and saving the lost. Reaping the harvest of souls that are awaiting our loving outreach. Simple, so simple. And you might not have certain gifts that you think you can be on the front line, so to speak, um, in the Great Commission or reaping the harvest of souls, but we've been through this before. We all have our gifts, we all have our pulpits, we all have our assignments. It's embracing that, whatever that is, and the way God decides to use you, it's embracing that where you're going to find joy and peace. So if you're a believer, it's your inner desire to be undistractedly devoted to the Lord. You have that desire, even though you might not know how to do it. It might not pan out all the time. As Pastor talked about the TV thing on Sunday. You know, you might not know how to do it. You might not, might not be willing to step through that door. But in your heart, you have this desire, you know, to be undistracted. You're just not there yet, maybe. But it's a desire in our hearts as believers. And as we've seen, it depends on what we focus on. On the board, this has come out as a slippery slope. As a person's focus goes, so goes their devotion. And typically, as a person's devotion goes, so goes their idolatry. It all begins with distraction, hyper-focus on the details of life, and a supplanting of our first love. Distractions take our focus away, and therefore our peace with it. It, our peace is fleeting because we get our eyes on distractions, focusing on the wrong things. A key question the Spirit brought up on Sunday was this. Are we going to give up on God and take a counterfeit blessing? This question exists in our lives, whether we like it or not, and probably throughout our whole lives due to different temptations that come in. Are we going to give up on God and take a counterfeit blessing? As we wait on God's timing, we are tempted to accept the counterfeit 
because Satan makes it easier and quicker to attain. He might even put it in your bank account. He might make it so easy, so available, that you just got to cut one little corner to receive it. But counterfeits never deliver. They're always empty in the end. And we either believe that by faith before it happens, or we suffer again. We accept the counterfeit, we see how empty it is, and we reap what we sow. Again. But it's just not worth it. Most of us, many of us, have been through times in our lives when we've tried to rush God's blessings and became miserable because of it. So at God, as He humbles us, maybe we don't always humble ourselves, but He humbles us, uh, we get to this place where we're ready. More and more, that's sanctification, more and more to accept Him as the way, the truth, and the life. To accept Him as the source of joy. And to kind of embrace Him alone. Here's a good question for us to think about. But why desire a blessing if it's not from above? If it's not from above, it's not really a blessing. It's not, quote-unquote, good, as in James 1.17. If it's not from above, it's not really a blessing. It might look like a blessing, sound like a blessing, etc. But if it's not from above, it's not a blessing. It's probably a curse in disguise. Dressed up like the piggy. Turn to James 1.17. Why desire a blessing if it's not from above? If it's not from above, it's not a real blessing. It's not good. Remember talking about the definition of what good really is and who has the right to define that? Well, good only comes from God. James 1.17, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. There's no exceptions there. This doesn't say most good things come from above. Every good thing, everything that's truly good, comes from above. Coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. And we often breeze over that phrase, I think, at least I have. If something is truly a blessing from God, there's no variation or shifting shadow. There are no uh, counterfeits or imitations that come from God. He's the author of true goodness, right? Things that are truly good, things that are truly blessings. If something is truly a blessing from God, there's no variation or shifting shadow. That means there's nothing fishy about it. There's no compromises required to get God's gifts. God's gifts are gifts. There's no striving to take you away from Jesus as your first love. If it's from God, He's going to place it in front of you. It's going to be easy, not difficult. If it's a blessing from God, He's going to give it to you. So why do we fall for counterfeits when they have a variation to them, a shifting shadow, something fishy about them? 
because in our flesh we think we need them to be happy. So we, you know, take the bait. We must wait on God's timing if we want His blessings, which are the truly good blessings. And let's remember, even our Lord was tempted to accept counterfeit blessings. Even Jesus in the flesh was tempted to accept counterfeits. But he knew the source, and he knew the emptiness found in them because they weren't from his heavenly Father. See, Jesus was objective. He's like, if it's not from my Father, it's not good. I don't care how good you try to make it look, Satan. So we shouldn't think we're the only one tempted with counterfeit blessings, and we should never think the Lord doesn't understand. He went through much more than you and I will ever go through in terms of temptations. He certainly understands the temptations we have, and he wants us to follow his great example of turning away from them. And how did he turn away from them? With the one thing that's truly necessary. He used the word to turn away from them. Most of you know where we're going with this. But go to Matthew 4, verse 1. And let's just see a couple of counterfeits Jesus was offered. And the times when things are most tempting is when you're struggling, when you're suffering, when you're going without, as we'll see here. Matthew 4, 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. There we see sometimes God will ordain Satan's tempting us to test our faith, remember. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Only one thing is really necessary, Jesus said. After 40 days of fasting, 40 days and 40 nights. So that's a great temptation, isn't it? To have some fresh, hot, homemade bread in front of you after fasting for 40 days, which we can't imagine. We all would have folded like a house of cards, right? You know what a fresh hot loaf of bread is after you haven't eaten for six hours. You're like acting like you're insane. Some of you, I know how hangry you get. It's not pretty. I mean, we're, we're miserable when we're hungry and when we're tired, right? And Jesus held up the word to Satan's face after 40 days. So we're talking about counterfeits. This bread from Satan was to cut a corner to not receive God's blessings, to compromise. And Jesus said, no. No matter how good something looked to the eyes, Jesus didn't want it unless it was from his heavenly Father, unless it had no variation or shifting shadow, no catches. Look at verse 8, Matthew 4, 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you 
if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. We should expect nothing less in the devil's world than to be tempted with counterfeits like this. As we began tonight's message, the Lord told us we will have tribulation in this world. Devil's world. It's almost like we're here to be tempted and tested. Thank God that's not what life is all about. Thank God gives, God gives us reprieves. God gives us time to learn, to regroup, to get ready for the next test. But think about our purpose. Think of where we reside in the devil's world with a limited chance and opportunity to bring God glory by faith, to not accept the counterfeits. Turn to 1 John 5, 19. The Apostle John gave us another reminder of this in his letter to the church. 1 John 5, 19. The place that we live is full of temptations. We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Those are the facts. As we talked about on Sunday, about John's writing style, John's very uh, flat, uh, flatly states things, very direct. And there are two opposing realities even in this verse. We're of God, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And John habitually wrote in plain fashion, stating the facts of the spiritual realities in this life. So there's no... There's no confusion. There's no compromising the truth. On the board, the two spheres. The Apostle John saw only two fears, spheres, excuse me, believers and unbelievers. He wrote upon this basic premise because many were supposing gray, morphed religion was sufficient for salvation. And it isn't, of course. So he was very plain. He's like, this is what believers look like. This is what unbelievers look like. Clear distinctions between the two, as in the top circles. On the bottom, we see an overlapping that a lot of religions try to do. They try to include themselves with us, and they try to get us to include ourselves with them and compromise truth. Believers and unbelievers don't mix or compromise, speaking of their characteristics and lifestyle. That's what John wrote a lot about. So again, look at 1 John 5, 19. We know that we are of God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. John's saying to us believers that we must realize every day that we live in the devil's world and therefore idols are going to be cast out at us left and right. Opportunities to what? Turn away from the end of verse 20, the true God and eternal life. He says, this is the true God and eternal life. Jesus, the Son of God, the one you believed in, 
This is him. So guard yourselves from idols. Stop being suckered into following false gods. This is the true God and eternal life. Live in the victor's perspective. Watch out for idols. Anything to not worship the true God and Savior, says Satan. Satan throws out many alternatives that we can worship. And that's what we do when we enter into idolatry. And we, we might not like put it in those words. We might not say that's what we're doing. But we actually end up worshiping these things in our soul. We give them affection. Affection. Towards a person, a thing, um, uh, I don't know, it couldn't be a place. We idolize, put it on a pedestal. We're basically worshiping that thing. When that kind of affection should only be reserved for the Lord. So we realize that idolatry is one of Satan's main tactics. Pastors call this the American plague. It's especially common in our country just because of all of our technology and advancements. Americans are plagued with idolatry. We are often the world's primary source of it. See the blog. So it's something we, we have to live with. Um, we shouldn't be surprised in the devil's world. And let's not let ourselves off the hook by blaming the rest of America or Hollywood, for example. What about you and I? We have to have a come to Jesus, if you will. What about you and I? What forms of idolatry have we been sucked into that we've accepted as okay to put on a pedestal and have uh, inappropriate affections towards even? Put it in a too high place in our soul. The Spirit's been asking us to be honest with Him. If you've been listening, just be honest with me. He wants us to take an honest look in the mirror at our own lives and priorities. This has come out as situational awareness. Most people are so ingrained in idolatry that they hardly even recognize their condition. This is us. This is not everybody else. This is us. Because when you're so ingrained in something, you're deceived by it. You don't even realize you're doing wrong necessarily unless you humbly step back and analyze yourself and are willing to see and admit your mistakes. What things or people are taking us away from Jesus as our first love? Nobody's immune to this. We all fall away at times because you know what? We live in the devil's world and there are deceptions all around us, spinning all around us from the time we were two. And spinning around us are these deceptions trying to get our attention. And because it's so ingrained even from childhood, we don't even recognize our condition, our idolatry. On the board, the human flesh thrives on idolatry. As the word is food for the new creature, so idolatry is for the old self. Creature credit is the currency, as we know. The old self is preoccupied with the details of life, and it wants a piece of the pie in terms of credit. And if you can't give yourself the credit, you know what we do? We, we tend to find an idol that we can see with our eyes, another person, a hero, in whatever field of life it might be. Someone we can see, like the Jews in the desert wanted to see God, but they couldn't, so they said, make us a golden calf. At least I can see that. 
instead of having to go by faith and not seeing. So that's what we do. We seek something, someone to put on a pedestal, some, someone we can see so that we don't have to go by faith. And that's called idolatry and that's called worship of a false God, not the true God and eternal life. On the board, John 6:35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger and he who believes in me will never thirst. This is the way to be full, have your joy made full. This is the way to be satisfied. Only one thing's really necessary. Again, it's our choice who and what we look to for strength and satisfaction. What are we looking to? That's part of the problem is we, we do it with our physical eyes and we think we need to see something. We all have some problems with idolatry, wrongly placing things or people ahead of Christ and making Jesus our second or third love. And, you know, God, by grace, God knows these things take time for us to grow up, for us to see things. He's so patient with us. Uh, why do you think he lets the average person live to age 70, 80, or 90 years old to figure it out? That's how patient God is but we're slow and under deception in the devil's world. And he understands that. So here's a healthy spiritual reminder. As sometimes we think God is against us when things aren't going right in our eyes. This came out on Sunday on the board. I put it on the board for you. Remember, God's not trying to kill us. Just the cancerous part of us, the dead part. He's surgically separating us from the vestiges of sin. From the old self and the life it's built up for itself over the years. He's gently, patiently, surgically separating us from the vestiges of sin. He just doesn't go in there and start cutting everything out. He knows how weak we are. He loves us. He's like, I'm going to do this slowly for you because I know you can't take it any other way. And this is sanctification. Gradually being separated for God's purposes. He's so, so, so patient. So we have to remember why we're here and why we've been born again. It's to live out a new life. Uh, the one who that rescued us from death itself and gave us a new life. On the board in 2 Timothy 2.4, no soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one that enlisted him as a soldier. That word's been coming up a lot in a lot of different scriptures. Please the Lord. And for most of you, that's the desire of your heart. Again, you might not know how to do it. You might not know how to get entangled, if that's a word, untangled from the world, from the details that you're kind of trapped in. But God is gracious. And he's like, I know it takes time. I built you. I know what you're like. I know your problems. I know the sin nature you got. 
In Hebrews 11, we saw a wonderful example of those who chose to live by faith, even though they had their shares of failures as well, as we know from reading our Bibles. And as came out on Sunday, we might recognize that each individual in Hebrews 11 surrendered themselves to the Lord. They surrendered their life to the Lord. Even though they weren't perfect and they didn't, you know, they all failed. They did some amazing things. And you know it wasn't of them. Because they were like supernatural type of things. The flesh is incapable of. As we mentioned earlier, only by surrendering will we be enabled to live with undistracted devotion for the Lord. Or as came out on Sunday on the board, undistracted devotion to the Lord is impossible without surrender to His will. See, we want both. We want to say we're undistractedly devoted to God, but keep our own will. And only by surrendering to His will, losing your life to find it, only by that thing, that beautiful, precious act of faith, is He then free to take over and change us and make us, help us be live undistractedly. Go to Hebrews 11.13. I just want to share with you one thing that stood out for me on Sunday. Hebrews 11.13. And this is a good example to us because, uh, as I'll share in a minute, you know, something that I often do, I'm sure you often do it too, um, we judge by what we see. Look at Hebrews 11:13. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Look at verse 39. 39. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. They did not receive what was promised, but they still had their faith. These believers had faith that was persistent and resilient. They had a persistent trusting in the Lord regardless of what they saw or regardless of what they were given by God. And this is a good example for all of us because the flesh, the flesh tends to doubt God. They didn't lose their faith because they didn't see the promises come through in their lifetimes. There's been a lot of emphasis tonight on the eyes and what we see. We often increase our faith when God blesses us. Isn't that true? Isn't that sad but true? We often increase our faith when God blesses us, when we have things we can see that He gave us, did for us, etc. And if not, well, maybe God doesn't love us that much. Anyone ever done that in your soul? What am I doing wrong? Does God really love me? Nothing's going right. All the blessings I'm asking for, He's not giving me. And we lose faith because we don't see the blessings. These guys didn't lose faith. They didn't see the blessings. They must have asked for more faith because faith's not of ourselves. It's a gift from God. But it's obviously a bad perspective if our faith increases when God blesses us 
It's the wrong way to look at things. How about a godly perspective like he knows all things. He knows what's best for me. That's what the Hebrews 11 folks said. They didn't have to see the blessings. He knows all things. He knows what's best for me. That's it. And his timing is perfect. That's it. He's God. You want to bless me, Lord? Wonderful. If not, I know it's probably not the best thing for me. It's definitely not the best thing for me because you know all things. Which perspective are we going to have? On the board, it's the flesh that tempts us to evaluate God's faithfulness by what we see or gain as blessings. And that's another temptation from the devil himself. Don't let your faith rely on those things. It's a dangerous place to to go. Again, it's the flesh that tempts us to evaluate God's faithfulness by what we see or gain as blessings. That's another temptation from the devil himself. If you tend to think that way, then now's the time to cut it out, to make a decision that it's evil, and you're going to repent of that way of thinking. On the board, all we really need to know, again, the idea, only one thing is necessary, all we really need to know is that we've been graciously granted eternal life through Christ. Do you need any other blessing? We know we don't deserve any other blessing. We don't need any other blessing than that. So let's evaluate God's faithfulness by the cross and nothing else. Amen? Let's stop evaluating His faithfulness based on things we see or receive or can touch, etc. After all, if we're honest, we deserve nothing good. On the board, Luke 17, 10. So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say we are unworthy slaves, we have done only that which we ought to have done. We don't deserve any blessings. By grace, he blesses us in different ways at different times. Totally by grace though, right? Totally undeserved. So why, we, why do we have our eyes on the wrong things and even evaluate God's faithfulness by that? What a horrible thing. But we can thank God that Jesus has empathy for our fleshly struggle. He understands and out of love is extremely patient with us as we grow. On Sunday, Pastor shared his own heart and understanding and love for the Lord's patience for us on the board. He said while he's ever demanding, given his own integrity to the word, he's also ever patient with us. A wonderful truth to hold on to. He is ever demanding. He's perfect. He doesn't compromise his truth whatsoever. And at the same time, he's ever patient with us. God knows our struggle is real. He became a man and went through it all, partly so we would know he understands. Living life in the flesh in this deceptive world. And that's why we mustn't be too hard on ourselves. It's easy to do. I know I do it sometimes because a lot of our messages have been convicting, you know, challenging to examine ourselves, to, to 
honestly see uh, our wrong motivations, our idolatries. So they're convicting, but we mustn't be too hard on ourselves. God knows. Remember, Christ died so that we could be free. Galatians 5.1 says it was for freedom that Christ set us free. So it wasn't for nothing. That's like where we should be standing, kind of the victor's perspective again. Standing in freedom. So what does God want from us? On the board, we have to learn to put the onus of sanctification on the Lord. That's what He wants. Put the onus of sanctification on the Lord. If God wants something done, He presumes it's His work to do. He knows it's His work to do. He knows we can't do it. And He's like, I'm going to produce a miracle in you, in your life, over time, that Satan and the angels, fallen angels are going to be very frustrated by. On the board, Matthew 19, 26, And looking at them, Jesus said to them, With people this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Even sanctifying you and me. The crummy flesh we have, getting us out of the way. We mustn't assume God's place or God's role in our sanctification. He started it, He'll finish it. That's what the Bible says. He knows how inept we are. Philippians 1.6 For I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So we mustn't let the conviction of the Spirit turn into a striving in the flesh. It's very easy for some of us to do. Don't let the conviction of the Spirit turn into a striving in the flesh. Life doesn't depend on us. I was thinking about this on Sunday. We get so wrapped up in ourselves sometimes that we think life depends on us. When God doesn't need us whatsoever, right? He's going to fulfill His plan with or without us. Life doesn't depend on us. It depends on God providing us with faith and power. That's what it depends on. It depends on Him. What do we do? What's our role? We get out of the way. We yield to Him. We surrender. And then He comes in and takes over and gives us everything we need. Life doesn't depend on us. It doesn't depend on you. But God can use you, if you're willing, of course, right? Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. <clears throat> can't believe it's almost over. We're not going to get to all our notes, but say la vie. But we'll end with a couple of uh, scriptures here, it looks like. <clears throat> and a wonderful point that came out on Sunday. But I want you to see the following emphasis that the Spirit gave us in our recent past, even in this last year. We are to be humble and even humbled but never despondent or despairing. You remember that emphasis? It wasn't too long ago. Look at 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7. But we have this treasure 
in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. What a supernatural, spiritual explanation of life in the new man right there. And I dare you to read that over and over and keep a fleshly perspective because there is the supernatural way it's done. And how is it done? The onus is on God. The surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. And we are never despairing because of that. So as we close, to be undistractedly devoted to the Lord is an issue of the heart. As Holy Scripture talks about the motives and the intents of the heart, the intentions of the heart. And here's something wonderful that came out for us on Sunday, and I put this on the board for you as well. The heart is God's field in sanctification. The heart is God's field in sanctification. He changes it fundamentally at salvation, thank God, and then he continues to nurture it, encourage it, even place in it a sense of motivation. That should say, in it. Place in it a sense of motivation. He even does that for us. Even our good motivation, what we might call even our good conscience, like in 1 Timothy 1, even that's a function of God's work on us in sanctification. Even that's a provision of God and His faithfulness. And this was also given to us on Sunday. Since sanctification is a work of God, we mustn't get too worked up about not being sanctified to the degree our new hearts desire just yet. We mustn't get too worked up about not being where we want to be because God's got it under control, believe it or not, even when it doesn't feel like it. He's working on us. We don't always see it. Again, we want to see things, like right now. We don't always see it, but he's doing stuff. And eventually, it comes out like as fruit in your lives, both in our hearts and in our lives that we live. Think about Paul's desire in Romans 7. As he struggled daily, but his heart was good. His motivation was right. He's like, I want to be undistracted, devoted to you, Lord, in that way. You know I do. I keep failing, but you know I do. And if you can say that about yourself too, that's a wonderful sign of who you are in Christ. But to be patient, to not overstep our bounds while seeking undistracted devotion. Let's not force it. Let's not ruin whatever God has already worked out in us. He's already done some amazing things in every one of us. Think of where you were when you started, when this began. Think of where you came from. Let him complete the work that he promised in you. Again, on the board, Philippians 1.6, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus.
I'm going to close with one last point. I got two minutes. Let's end this message by learning to think with the faith of a child. This is something I thought of on Sunday during the message and where God wants us to be in our faith, right? Think of the joy a little child has when he finds out that his quote-unquote all-powerful dad promises to do something for him. The child doesn't yet know that his father's not all-powerful yet, right? He's like five years old. He's like, my dad can do anything. Think of the joy that child has. Think of the uh, faith without doubt that he has. He has no doubt that his father will do what he said he's going to do. That's the most pure faith I think we see in this life. But our Heavenly Father makes us certain promises, and He's all-powerful, right? So we're not naive or out of line, maybe like a little child is naive to think his father's all-powerful and is going to do whatever. His father says he's going to pull the moon down. My dad's going to pull the moon down. We're not naive like that little child is to have that faith in our Heavenly Father, right? We do have the all-powerful Father on our side. So on the board, the faith of a child puts the onus on his father. And think of a five-year-old child saying this. God promises to make me holy. God promises to make me holy. I'm not worried. He's my God and Father, and I know he can do it. That's the kind of pure faith God wants us to have even in our sanctification as we struggle. It's not about me. I know my Father can do this. I know He's going to do it. He says He's going to do it. He's done everything that He said. In the end, He wins. We're already victors in Christ. He's already seated us in heavenly places in Christ. I know He's going to do it. That's my perfect Father. Again, the thing about the faith of a child is that he has absolutely no doubt in his heart. And you and I can have this pure faith that God's after. We have no reason to be apprehensive about it, in other words. God's going to do it. Put the onus on your Heavenly Father. In His perfect love and power, He always finishes what He starts in His children. Let's bow. Father, we thank you so much that you take this burden off of us. Your burden is light. We come before you in surrendering faith. Help us surrender more and more each day and allow you to just do your magic in us, the miracle in our souls that takes place through you and only you, providing the faith and the power to be changed and to bring you glory in this world. And Father, we ask you to help us live in your work, in your will, to seek and save the lost, and to be filled up with the joy that your Son had by living in your purpose. We ask that you bless us all as we go. It's in Christ's precious name we pray, by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Amen.